morning. Scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 34. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, then, it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then, in the, then the end will come, when the hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son, of, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? Sorry. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If I die, oh, I die every day. 
I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Thank you, Leoni. <clears throat> Representative Ten Lu, a congressman from the state of California, uh, recently pushed for a a bill to be passed that would establish a national day of reason. And amongst other reasons for this day, they say that uh, the proposed bill. That day, would, that day would be used to encourage Americans to use reason, critical thought, the scientific method, and free inquiry to the resolution of human problems. Today we are continuing in our series called The Story. And the central idea of this whole series, which we've been in now for eight months or so, is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the story, the overarching narrative of Scripture, that the Bible is not primarily a book of timeless wisdom, uh, though it contains, all, it contains all kind of wisdom, but to really get at that wisdom in any passage, you've got to see how that passage fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture, that it is a story, and it unfolds in these four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And when we come to this passage, of course, we're going to see this this passage is just obviously referring to this story. If you have any chance of understanding this passage, you have to see that it's part of the story. And in fact, one verse in in particular actually sums up the entire story. One little verse, you can see the whole story. Uh, verse, verse, so I highlight, verse 22. Look at this. It says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The entire story is contained in that one verse. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. First of all, creation. First of all, for all in Adam. Creation, God created all things. He created, he created the, the world with beauty and order, and he created Adam. He created humanity to, to join with him in bringing greater beauty and order to all of creation. So creation, then the fall, all die. In Adam, all die. That, that Adam turned away from God and said, no, I think there's a different way. We want to do things. Thanks, God, but no thanks, We want to kind of go our own way, and so we turned away from God, and when you turn away from God, inevitably what will happen is that you'll end up turning away from other people, and so then we find in the early chapters of Genesis what I call the spiraling decadence of humanity, right? So that's the fall. For as in Adam all die, then here we are, redemption. So in Christ, in Christ, this is redemption really in Christ, sums up the entire Old Testament. 
in Christ, that, that, that God's plan for redemption began with Abraham. He called a people to be the means through which blessing would come to all of, all of creation, and then through Adam's line, through Israel. Then we get the story of Israel, God's people called to be the means through which redemption comes to all of creation. And then Jesus, the Messiah, who is the Israel's representative comes and carries out precisely what Israel and, and even Abraham were ultimately called to do, and that's be the means through which redemption comes. And Jesus does that through the cross and through the resurrection. That's redemption, creation, fall, redemption. And then restoration, all will be made alive. The whole story right there, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And, and then, of course, in this passage at the beginning, Paul, Paul, who's writing this, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church in Corinth, probably in the 50s or something like that, 50 AD, some 20, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's writing this to these people in Corinth. And he wants to, to drive home, okay, what is the climax of this story? What, what is the climax of this? And, of course, it's... This is what he means by, this is what he means by, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. It's another way of saying, this is the climax of the story. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom, most of whom are still living, i.e., you can go ask them about this. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You see, this is the climax. And, and, and here's what we need to see. What he's saying here is that Jesus died and rose from the grave in, in history. In history, this is, this is something that happened. This is something that happened in the story, right? Again, throughout this whole series, I've been saying that the Bible is not a book of timeless truths, timeless wisdom, but that it is a story. And it is right here where the rubber really meets the road. I've been saying this for eight months, but this is where the rubber really meets the road. What Paul is saying is that this whole Jesus dying and rising from the grave thing, this is not just some nice story to kind of tell us how the world works. It's not a nice story to just kind of illustrate a timeless truth or timeless principle about how the world works. Another way of saying it is that Paul wants it, it is making it very clear here that what he's talking about is something that happened. It's not something that happens, at least not primarily. It's something that happened. It's, it's, it's not something that happens. Put it a different way. We, we celebrate Easter, or we, ce- we celebrate the resurrection uh, during the springtime. And on one hand, that's very appropriate, I think. That makes a lot of sense, actually, right? Because it's new life. So the resurrection of Jesus, new life, and then we have this you know, beautiful kind of imagery of new life all around us. And, and actually, even Paul uses this kind of imagery with Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. It's an agricultural kind of imagery that Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. And so on one hand, it's really nice that we celebrate it when spring comes because it reminds us about the goodness of life. The problem, there's a danger with it. And it's a danger that has caught a a vast uh, segment of Western culture. 
And that is that really what all, all the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus is, is a nice story to remind us about the death and rebirth that is present in life. It's just a nice story about, about you know, in, in the fall and the winter, everything dies, and then, and then in the spring, everything comes back to life. And, and, and then the next, the next year, right, the winter comes and everything dies, and then the spring comes and it comes back to life, right? It's, it's just Jesus is just reminding us of the circle of life, the circle of life. And, and guess what? That's not Christianity. That's the Lion King. That's not Christianity. That's the Lion King. That, it, it, the, the resurrection of Jesus is not a nice story about something that, that, that happens. He's saying it's something that, that happened in history. Now, certainly, and this is where some of the confusion comes, is that there are subsequent results of what happened that happened. And this is actually what we talked about last week, that, that the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you and me now. And, and brings life, and, 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 and brings life into different people at different times. And, and so the Spirit comes and bring life, brings life. That's something that happens. But it happens because of what happened. And we can't confuse the effect with the cause. He's saying this happened in history. So, so Paul's saying that, 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 what, that what happened, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is something that happened. It's not just something that happens. And then what he's also saying is that, that what happened, what happened is something that does not happen. He wants to make this very clear. The, what the climax of this story, okay, is something that happened that does not happen. Right, the climax of the story, he's not saying that Jesus, you know, got sick and, you know, went into his room for three days, and then he got better and, and came out, right? I mean, that, that's something that happens, right? That happens. That's not what he's saying. Uh, he, he's not saying that this is like when, when someone in your family sleeps in, you know? They're like noon, and they, they come out of their room, and everybody in your family sings, up from the grave he arose, right? You know, that happens. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is something that happened that does not happen. He's not saying that Jesus died and then his twin brother came to the funeral and everybody got confused, right? And that's something that could happen. That's something that some skeptical scholars like to try to argue. Eh, something that, you know, that happens. No, no, he, he, he's saying that what happened, okay, is something that does not happen. He's saying that Jesus died. He was dead for three days. And after having been dead for three days, he came back to life. And friends, that is something that does not happen. You know, my wife and I, we teach our children this just about every day, that Jesus died. And then he came back to life three days later. And I, I expect that there could come a point, you know, at some point uh, when they get older where maybe one of them will come up to me and say, you know, Dad, I'm kind of struggling a little bit with this whole thing that Jesus died 
and then he came back to life. And I, and I was like, okay, uh, why? And I anticipate that they might say, well, that, that, I mean, that's just, that does not happen. And that just does not happen. And, and in that moment, if that moment comes, there no doubt will be, I'll be nervous. I'll be anxious. Um, but I'll also be actually very proud of them and very happy for them. And I'll, I'll give them a hug, and I'll say, honey, I am so proud of you. You have become a rational person. I'm so proud of you. You are a rational individual. And I don't say that lightly because there's a lot of irrationality going on in our world today. And there's a lot of irrational people that just don't use reason or ration in anything that they, when they, as they make decisions in life, they don't think through reason and rationality. And this is why, in principle... I actually agree with the idea of a national day of reason, in principle. And I get it. I mean, I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I kind of understand why there, there are people in our culture who, who they feel like there is, a, and I agree, there's a, an alarming number of people in our culture who seem to just sort of abandoning anything that scientists say, abandoning reason. And so there's an alarming number of people who just seem to sort of being ignoring science to their own detriment. And so, in, in principle, in principle, I would, I would agree with this idea, yeah, you know, we should have a sort of national day of reason, just kind of remind people about the importance of this. Um, but there's, there's one problem with this particular bill, and that is that this particular bill wants to put the, the national day of reason on the same day as the national day of prayer. And so, the, what they want to do is, is, is essentially as an alternative to it. As, as, a, as an alternative to the National Day of Prayer, let's have a National Day of Reason. I, I, I'm not in favor of that. And I suspect, and I suspect sometimes I overthink things, but, but I actually think that, that what they're doing is, is actually counterproductive. Because what I would suggest is, is that one of the reasons why people are turning and abandoning science and reason is precisely because science and reason has, has often overstepped its bounds has often tried to claim things that it really can't claim. That this is basically what the modern world was all about, is that, is that science is basically trying to squeeze out all other ways of knowing. As if to say, just listen to science. Science will tell you everything that you would ever need to know. And just starts to squeeze out all other, all other modes of, of knowing and... And the problem with that, and here's honestly the problem with that. The problem is that when science does that, it turns into bad science. It's actually bad science. You see, there is a limit. There is a limit to what science can, can show us. Now, what I, 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 there's actually within what science can do, there's probably no limit at all. Within the realm that science can operate, there's probably no limit at all. But, but there are certain ways of knowing that science cannot get to, and oftentimes science will try to make claims that science really can't. And, and actually, here, I'm not actually being critical of just, you know, non-Christian scientists. I mean, I'll even see scientists who are Christians who will make the same mistake and try to claim that science is saying more than it really is. Let me kind of give you an example. If you hear somebody say, or if you hear, see an article or a book that says, science has proven, and this is where the rubber meets the road, right? 
You see a paper or a book that says, science has proven that God does not exist. I assure you there is some bad science in there. But guess what? If you, if you see a book or an article that says, science has proven that God exists, there's also bad science there too. Because science can only... Now, you guys are thinking, wait a minute, Kevin, what do you know? What do you know about science? You're a pastor. And you're right. I don't really know anything about science, but I don't really need to, and here's why. Let me just, let me, let me put it this way. There is a, there's a podcast that I have listened to for many years now. It's really good. It's called Unbelievable. And it's, it's a podcast where they, they get scientists and philosophers and theologians, and they'll get, they'll get two together with opposing opinions to debate some sort of, you know, big, big question, right? And the moderator, Justin Brierley is his name, is really good. He's really good. He's a Christian, uh, and I, I, he's very good at this, and not only because he seems to be able to deal with all kinds of different issues, but even more importantly, he models for Christians how to dialogue with non-Christians on very challenging subjects. Because I think oftentimes Christians, if they get into to points where our faith is being challenged, we get defensive. And we, you know, we get defensive and we don't really know how to respond. And Justin Briarley is very good at, at being respectful, even when they're not being necessarily respectful to him. I've seen even times when he'll actually come to the defense of the atheist because the Christian isn't really either making sense or being very nice. He does a very good job of, of modeling that for us, right? So anyway, so I, I listen to this oftentimes when I'm running. I'll go running and I'll, I'll listen to this. And I've listened to it for years. But here's what I've come to realize, okay, is that a lot of the, of the podcast episodes, they're all basically the same. They really are. They're all basically the same. Here's what happens. You'll get, you know, you'll get like two geneticists together to debate, you know, whatever, science and genetics and all this kind of stuff. One of them is a Christian and one of them is not a Christian. And they'll start, you know, let's look. What does the scientific evidence say about, you know, God? And is there a God and all this? And so here's what happens. The first 15, 20 minutes, they're talking about stuff I don't understand at all. No idea. It's like genes and, you know, cellular walls, and I don't even know, right? But they, and they start talking about it, but then you know, I'll notice the conversation. They'll go, they'll start talking about genes and then genetic mutations, and then, then maybe from there, they'll start talking about genetic diseases, genetic diseases. And then somewhere in there, they'll end up talking about, you know, why, why would God allow these genetic diseases to happen? Like, why, why would God allow suffering and stuff? And so now they'll, now they'll start talking about this question of, why God allow suffering? Now, okay, now I understand what's going on, right? This is my bag. This is my jam. This is theology. So now I've, I didn't understand the first 20 minutes, but now I hear them, and they start making all kinds of claims and assertions, and here's what I know. When they start making their claims and assertions here, none of it is based on science. None of it is. They're still making claims and assertions about suffering and all this kind of stuff, and maybe the early stuff was based on the scientific method, but the stuff they're talking about now is not based on the scientific method. And I know this because when I was in seminary, we talked about all of this. And do you know how many times in seminary we did double-blind placebo-controlled experiments? I can count it on no hands. I mean, we talked about all of this stuff and, and, and different you know, ways of understanding different questions and people make different claims. And, and, and you, know, you, know, you know what those claims are based on? Faith. Faith. 
They're based on faith. And you know what? It's based on faith no matter which side of the divide you're on. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. When you start getting, see, see, science can only get you so far. But when you get to those ultimate questions, there comes a point where faith is the only other way to get there. No matter which side of, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. My mom was a college professor for many years, and she had a colleague in the math department, very smart, rational guy, who was not a believer, was an atheist. And they would get into conversations frequently, but he had the wisdom and the humility to admit that his atheism was every bit as much an act of faith as my mom's belief in God. You see, science only gets you so far, and then it's it's faith, and, and so you, we need both. We need both faith and reason, and so th- this, is, this is why I would be in favor of a National Day of Reason. Just don't put it on the day, same day as the National Day of Prayer, because we need both. We need to be people who, who use reason and rationality, and we listen to science, but we also need to be a people who pray, and, and, and not just once a year. Not like we're only going to listen to the scientists once a year and we're only going to pray once a year. I mean, we just need to be people who, who pray, seek God, and we also are rational people. We need both faith and reason. And so when my child comes to me and says, says Dad, I, you know, I don't, the resurrection of Jesus, I, I don't know about this. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. I'll say, honey, that I'm proud of you. You are a rational person. And then depending on how old they are, I don't know exactly where I would go from there, but, but at some point I might say, you know what, you're right, that doesn't happen. But that isn't the same thing as saying it can't happen. And it's definitely not the same thing as saying it didn't happen. But to get at that, it's going to require faith to believe that. It's not blind faith. It's not faith without reason. And then then I might go into looking at some of the the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We have a different nature than scientific evidence. I mean, scientists are even sometimes trying to squeeze out the historians. I mean, they want to get rid of everybody, right? I mean, historical evidence is, is, is different, but there's all kinds of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I would say that after you look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it's going to take faith to not believe. It's going to take faith to believe as well. And it's going to take faith because Paul is saying that something happened that does not happen. He's saying that Jesus died, was buried, And three days later, came back to life. But he's not done. (laughs) He goes on to say, Jesus died and rose from the grave in anticipation of that day when all of God's people will be raised from the dead as Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, let me tell you something. Let me see what that, tell you what that's saying, because this is something that I think a lot of Christians don't really get. 
to be honest with you, this, I didn't really even get this until I went to seminary. I don't know why, if it just wasn't taught that much. But, it, but let me just put it this way. For Christians, our, our ultimate hope and our ultimate destination is not just our soul going to heaven when we die. Now, Paul, in the book of Philippians, he, he talks about how he can't wait. He, he's like, he's in prison. He's like, I don't know if I would rather die or stay here because my life's pretty miserable. And he says, I'd love to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And there he clearly seems to be talking about what is sometimes called the intermediate state, where, where our, our spirit is with God, with Jesus in the presence of God. But to be honest with you, the Bible really doesn't talk about it very much. It doesn't say a whole lot. It's clearly there, but it doesn't say a whole lot because the ultimate hope is that, is that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so God's people will similarly be raised from the dead. And, and actually, what's interesting is that Paul is actually arguing against precisely those who probably think that their soul just goes somewhere when they die. He's actually arguing against that. Because that's probably, again, what's going on here is this church in Corinth, there is a group of them who don't believe in this final resurrection, that God's people will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead. And so probably what they believed, because in the, in the Roman world at that time, pretty much what most people believed was that your spirit went somewhere. Uh, it wasn't really necessarily all that great. Uh, they're kind of different views on how fun it was where you were going to go. Uh, but th- most people kind of believe that. And so, so that's probably what they're, they're thinking. And he's saying, no, and see, here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, he's saying, if there's no resurrection, if it's just your spirit goes somewhere, why did Jesus have to come out of the grave? I mean, it, it's incredibly just straightforward, very logical here. It's like if our, if our eternal destiny is just our spirit going somewhere, why did Jesus need to physically be raised from the grave? That doesn't make any sense. And so then actually using his, he loves to be dramatic and rhetorical, he kind of flips it on his head. And he's like, look, if, if people aren't raised from the dead, then I guess Jesus wasn't either. Because it's really the same thing. It, what's, what happens there just anticipates what comes, what comes later. He's saying that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so also those who put their faith in him will also ultimately be raised from the dead as Christ was raised from the dead. And then he goes on to say, we cannot let go of this belief. He's saying we cannot let go of this. And he understands he has to say this. He has to say we cannot let go of this because what he understands is that there's tremendous cultural pressure. There's tremendous cultural pressure um, for them to, to give this up. There's tremendous cultural pressure for them to give up this idea that, that when, you, you, when you die, that, that ultimately you're going to physically be raised from the dead. There, there's all kinds of cultural pressure for this. And and do you know why there's cultural pressure, uh, why he sees that there's cultural pressure that, to not believe this? I'll tell you why. You ready for this? Because it's crazy. He knows there's all cultural pressure to not believe this. And the reason why is because it's crazy. Or to use Paul's own word, it's foolish. In fact, that's exactly what he says in the first chapter of the same letter to the same people. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn with me, chapter 1. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He understands that they're facing this cultural pressure to not believe that Jesus physically came back from the dead and to believe that in the end all of God's people will be raised from the dead. He understands there's all kinds of cultural pressure. This is on page 1,128. He understands there's all this cultural pressure. Why? Because it is crazy. It is foolish. And he admits it himself right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness. And here when he's saying the cross, he means the whole shebang, the cross, death, resurrection. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He's like, look, he understands there's all this cultural pressure to not believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that that at the end of the age, we're going to be raised from the dead. Because it's foolish. You know, C.S. Lewis, and I can't remember where he says this, but he points this out, and this this just defends what C.S. Lewis is saying. C.S. Lewis kind of makes this comment. So C.S. Lewis, you know, lived in the 20th century. And he talks about how there is like, there's this sense within late modern culture that something has been found out. There's this sense within modern culture that, you know, well, now we know things that they didn't know back then. And so there's this, this sense of like, you know, people, you know, people back then, right? I mean, they were, they were ignorant. They didn't have modern science. You know, of course they would believe this kind of thing. Of course they believe. You know, that what, 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 do they, what do they know? And, and C.S. Lewis points out, he's like, look, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, throughout the Enlightenment, there was never a paper written in like the New England Medical of Jur- Science or whatever it is, Medical Journal, whatever. There was never some article that was published, right? where it gets published, and then everybody is like, oh my gosh, did you hear this? You're never going to believe this. There is this new study that was just done at Harvard, and they just found out that when somebody dies, they don't come back to life. No one has ever said that. You know why? Because everybody has always known this. You don't need modern science to tell you that when somebody's dead, they're not going to come back to life. They all knew. They knew this in, in Corinth just as well as we know this today. N.T. Wright, in his, his book on the resurrection of Jesus, he spends several hundred pages just surveying the belief systems of the people who at that time, and what he discovers is that absolutely nobody believed that after you died, you would come back to life, except for the Jews And not even all of them believed it. And even the ones who did believe it only believed it very half-heartedly. Nobody nobody believed this. In fact, I would argue that to believe that that you're going to come back from the dead at the end of the age is, is, is just as crazy then as it was now, if not more. Because at least in our culture, there's there's still some residual Christian presence. But back then there's nothing. And so 
Paul understands that there's all kinds of cultural pressure for them to not believe this, but he's saying we cannot let go of this. We cannot let go of this idea that Jesus rose from the dead and that all of God's people will be raised from the dead at the end of the age. And the reason is this. If we let go of that, we lose everything. If we lose that, if we give up on that, if we don't believe that, we lose everything. We are to be pitied amongst all people. He says, if, if, we, if we lose that, everything that we do is, is a complete waste of time. Our religion, our good works, our hope for eternal life, completely useless. It's like our religion, it's, complete, it's completely useless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all this religious stuff would be completely useless. And this is the point that he's getting at in the admittedly very obscure part where he talks about baptism for the dead. Okay, verse 29, if there's no resurrection, what, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now, I'm just going to tell you straight up here, we have no idea what he's talking. There are all kinds of scholars who put forth different theories on what he's talking about, but even when they put forth a theory at the end, they say, I'm just guessing. I mean, really, we have no idea. They don't really talk about this anywhere else. It doesn't really matter, actually, because Paul is certainly not affirming. He's not saying you should do this. He's just talking about the fact that it's there. And his point, but his point simply is, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why, why would we do this? Why are we doing this? And really, that applies to all of the religious practices of, the, of Christians. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why do we do this? It's useless. Why, why do we go to church? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of our singing, all of my sermonizing, it's, it's useless. Communion, we're going to take communion today. Celebrating the death of Jesus. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was just... One of a ton of people that got crucified on crosses by the Roman Empire. It's just useless. Now, maybe some of you are like, oh, no, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, maybe it isn't true, but it can be true for you. I mean, it might not be true for me, but it could be true for you. You see, that works with basically every other religion. It just does not work with Christianity. I apologize for the stubbornness of the Christian faith. It simply cannot be squeezed into this, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. If it's not true for you, it's not true for me either. Listen, the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl this past year, and that's not just true for me. It's true for you, too. It might have more meaning to me, for me. It might have less meaning for you, but it's just true. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, that's what this is. That's the kind of, that's what is at the heart of the Christian faith. If that, you can't say it's true for you. If it's, if it's not true for you, it's not true for me either. Tim Keller says that the resurrection of Jesus makes Christianity the most irritating religion in the world. It's just irritating because it just it won't squeeze into this modern relativistic mode. 
He's saying, if it's not true, it's not true. And then, and then our religion is useless. Our religion is useless. Our good works are useless. This is what he means. We're still dead in our sins. It means a number of different things. It means that, that Jesus' death was not an atoning death. He's just some criminal. This is not actually God incarnate. You're still stuck in sin, separated from God. Not just that, but, but we saw last week that what enables us, what enables us to do good works is the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what enables us to be patient and kind. And, and, and he's saying, if, if that didn't happen, then really, we're just fooling ourselves. This is, this is never going to work because that's what enables. It's not you trying to be good. It's the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that works in you and produces patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. It's useless to even try. And, and then also, there's, there's no value. There's very little value to these good works. And we're going to talk about this more in, in a couple of weeks, maybe next week. I'm not sure yet. But, but what I'm getting at here is he, he's saying, you see, the good works that we do now, we're going to see this next week, I think. The good works that we do now carry on into the age to come. That ever, there isn't a drop of patience. There isn't a drop of kindness. There isn't a drop of goodness that, that you, through, by the Spirit working through you, produce that, that is lost that it has eternal value, that we are building towards this kingdom that is to come, that the way we live now anticipates this kingdom that is to come. None of it is lost unless Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Then I guess it maybe has some pragmatic utilitarian value for the here and the now, but that's it. Otherwise, it's useless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our religion is useless, our Good works are useless, and our hope for eternal life is useless. This is what he's saying. You see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion, is that this, this is an eternal life which really is victory over death. It's not just your spirit goes somewhere. I mean, that's kind of like cheating. It's like you didn't really conquer death. Christianity is saying, no, death itself is defeated. Real life. Life where you can hold your children. Life where you can touch your friend. Life where you can smell. Life where you can taste. Life. That is what is at stake here. Only in Christianity and, of course, the the Jewish roots from which it comes makes this claim of eternal life where death is really conquered. But if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then it's useless. To say we can't let go of this belief. Because if we do, then you know what you all should do? Eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Paul and I, for the offertory, we played an instrumental version of a song by the Dave Matthews Band. And the chorus basically just references this verse. It says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what the whole song is about. Just eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, if none of this is true, that's what you should do. He's saying, listen, he's saying there are only two philosophies of life. There's really only two. At the end of the day, you can boil this entire passage down to this. There are two philosophies of life that you can follow. 
It's eat and drink for tomorrow you die, or he has risen. That's it. Those are the two philosophies of life. And whichever one is your philosophy of life will completely impact the way you live your life. It'll affect every decision that you make. You know, what's remarkable about the book of 1 Corinthians is that most of it is incredibly practical. Most of it, Paul's talking about all kinds of things. He's talking about, well, he's talking about sexual relationships uh, and improper sexual relationships. He talks about marriage. He talks about divisions in the church, different church leaders following different, different leaders. He talks about lawsuits amongst believers. I mean, he talks about all kinds of practical stuff. I mean, it's almost kind of bizarre. He's just telling all this practical stuff. And then right at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it gets really deep. He's like, you know, tickle, 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 bam! You're like, whoa. It's just, you know, I mean, it's just like all of a sudden he gets really deep. Why? Why all this practical stuff? And then he gets really deep in the end, and here's what he knows. What he understands is that ultimately the reason why their lives are so out of sort is because they're not really living out of this philosophy of he has. It's causing all the problems in their relationships, in their church. They're not really living out of this philosophy of he has risen. They're really living out of this philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so this is the question for each and every one of us today is simply this. What is your philosophy of life? What is it that governs every decision you make? Decisions about work, decisions, decisions about how you'll spend your money, decisions about where you live, decisions about who you're going to marry, who you're going to interact with. Is it, boy, I just, I got to get, I just got to try to get whatever I can out of this life. I've just got to get whatever, as much as I can out of this life, because really, really it's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. What is it? What's your philosophy of life? There's really only two. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. For he has risen. We now come to our time of communion. And communion is an opportunity for us to once again reorient us to the Christian philosophy of life, which is that he has risen. As I said before, what... Jesus' death and resurrection, what it, what it represents, or what communion represents is that in Jesus we are forgiven of our sins, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has come and has absorbed the very weight of our sin that we might be reconciled to him, and that he has the words of eternal life, that he is the one in him and in him alone can we find eternal life. And so it's, it's an opportunity for us to once again reorient ourselves and to once again say, this is my philosophy of life. This is why communion is it's for, for those who believe. If, if you're not sure, if you're not sure what your philosophy of life is, it just certainly don't feel pressured to, to take the elements, right? This, this is a recommitment saying, yes, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for me and that he he rose again, and, and once again, we're going to do this one more time where we're going to have you come forward. 
during this Easter season. I wanted to do this. So we're still considering this kind of the Easter season. And so we're going to do it one more time this month where we're going to have you come forward. And the reason why we want you to come forward is because uh, I, I think that there, well, for one thing, there's an opportunity if you want to, to come forth and kneel, kneel down before the cross and just take a moment. Um, it, it's an opportunity to, it, it symbolizes our coming towards God. Right? That we, we see the invitation and we're making that decision to come and to, and to follow him. It, it, just, it just makes it, I think, a little more active, not quite so passive. That's, that's, the reason, that's the reason why we're doing it. We don't always do it that way. But we just invite you to come forward. You, when you come, you're going to come on the sides. Please come around the sides. Uh, you'll come up. Ushers, you go ahead and go ahead. Guys, go ahead and start uh, setting up. And basically, they will have the bread and the cup in either corner. And you'll come and, uh, and just go ahead and take it. As soon as you receive it, go ahead and take it right then and there. Again, if you want to come and kneel, as an act of just a symbol of your recommitment of your philosophy of life, please, please feel to do that. So you'll take the elements, take your cup with you after you've finished and go back, uh, go back to your seats. And then again, if you are unable to come forward, um, please just wait. And at the end, uh, we, will just, uh, we will ask again and uh, they, the elders will come and, and bring it to you. So let us now uh, pray for our communion. Dear Lord Jesus, once again, we come before you, and we are humbled by your tremendous act of love. God, we are humbled by that which is truly unbelievable, Lord. But God, we should expect nothing less from you. You are so much bigger than any box we could put you in. You are much grander than any scheme we could fit into, Lord. You are much greater than any paradigm we might try to fit you into. And so, God, we are humbled by this. And so, God, in humility, we come before you. We confess our lack of faith. We confess the ways in which daily we live out of a completely different philosophy of life than what you have called us to and what you have demonstrated really is the path to life. We just confess that. In so many ways, we do that. God, we, we place ourselves at the feet of your mercy and we receive your grace that we might truly find eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name.